0: Bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy podcast. I'm Erica, and today we have a special guest host, Kathleen Newman Bramang. Kathleen
1: hey hi erica thank you so much for having me i'm so, so excited to be here
0: oh my gosh we were so excited to have you i told erin i was like let's reach out to kathleen and she was super excited <laughs> super I love excited Love this podcast oh my gosh we love having you so um i shouldn't i was gonna ask oh what you've been up to and we know what you've been up to <laughs> this summer has been a really awesome summer for you uh and not so awesome in other ways because you had to relive a lot of traumatic experiences in your Mm. like seminal refinery 29 piece um i you know i'm now reading canadian pieces where i feel seen and i Mm. felt seen i felt like you saw me and countless others who are not even in media. So, for wow. anybody who wants a, uh, a reference, we talked about um, Kathleen's piece in episode ninety-five of the podcast. You can go back and you know listen to that. But we only kind of introed it. Uh-huh. Um, I would love to know what brought you to this moment. What brought you to this point? Because I can, I know how traumatic it is to relive your experiences. And, you know, because then it's not only reliving it, it's the guilt you feel for whatever action or action action you did or did not take. And I am feeling that hard right now. And I really just, it, that's a piece that allowed me to exhale.
1: Thank you for saying that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of things that led to writing it. Um, You know, it was a combination of um, everything that was happening in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by police and this kind of reckoning on anti-black racism that we were seeing in media. You know, there were a lot of Um, of my colleagues, some of whom I've met, some I haven't, who started speaking out, you know, ex-employees of Refinery29, where I work right now, Um, you know, uh, producers at Global News, uh, CBC employees, you know, people were coming out and sharing their stories. And I just felt like, you know, I hadn't really shared mine. And then, uh, you know, I, I, used to be a producer at the social and I did an appearance on the social where they, it was a share your chair edition of the, of the show where all of the non-black, uh, hosts of the show stepped aside and, you know, gave up their chair to all black people. So that the, the out, outward facing on that show, it was all black people. And I really, you know, it was on my heart <laughs> to, as Oprah would say, it was really, really weighing on my heart. Um, to say that I knew that there were no black voices behind the scenes of that show. And so that's what I said. But also the fact that there, at that point, was not a single black producer, uh, executive on the social, or um, even a production assistant that was black, was just one small part of what I had experienced at Bell Media. And what I knew that people, I mean, you said you felt seen, which Makes me really happy because I knew that that wasn't my story wasn't isolated. I knew that there are so many other Black women, Black people in media and beyond, who have these stories of microaggressions, of being held back, of um, not feeling safe in your work environment, and of feeling like you couldn't say anything. And then also the the whole like the piece is called for black women in media, a dream job is a myth, because from the outside, I looked like I had all these great jobs (laughs) and that I was doing really, really well in Canadian media. And my point is, not that I wasn't doing well. I have have had a lot of privilege and luck in this industry. I've also worked really hard. Um, So it's not even that I wasn't successful, it's that success, if you are black in Canadian media, comes with all of the shit that I wrote about. And so, yeah, all of that. I mean, that's a long answer to say this is why all of those things toppled on top of each other. And the fact that I felt like Bell Media was really kind of skirting by um, these conversations. No one had really called them out that as a, as a company yet. Um, and they. I felt like they needed to be held accountable along with CBC, along with Chorus. Um, so, yeah, that all led to it.
0: Um, I'm listening to you talk and I'm just like, Oh, yeah. The accountability piece is, uh, is the piece that a lot of us like find so frustrating. Because even when they do say the right words, that piece, um, the substance does not come with it. And Mm. when you actually challenge them in that procedure, they fall short, naturally. But also, these are companies that try to extricate themselves from any responsibility whatsoever when it is their responsibility it is it is their duty to create a workspace for all where everyone has an opportunity to succeed so in other words safety in the workplace is not just a physical issue Mm. so when you're talking about feeling safe can you like kind of expand on that don't worry I'll jump into
1: so like just just in case people
0: don't understand okay what safety means if it's not physical
1: okay so I think in every workplace you should be able to feel like you can speak your mind that um, you if you are qualified and capable that you have um, opportunities to advance, that you are not treated differently than your co-workers, that you don't have to be subjective, subjected to abusive language or to violent language or things that are triggering or hurtful to you. To me, that is a safe environment that's not physical. That is a mentally safe environment. And um, for me, many times in my career, and I know Uh, My black friends and my black colleagues have said the same, that, you know, we are subjected to words and language that are violent, that are unsafe, that hurt us um, and that make our jobs harder because we have to get over this, uh, you know, horrible language or horrible comments that we just have to kind of like that, that cut those comments cut and you just it's like getting a, like a sliced by a knife and then just like keep keep it moving. No tending to the wound, <laughs> you know, no stitches. Just keep going with the with your open bloody wound. <laughs> that is an example of it.
0: And, and how dare you ask for medical assistance?
1: Yes. Yes. How dare you? You know,
0: how dare um, you notice that gaping wound? How yes. dare you speak about it?
1: Yes. And yeah, I think that um, you know some of the examples I like given the, in the piece are just like, again, things that uh, you know my my white coworkers it, it got to do every day, which was like fight for a story they wanted or um, you know talk to their boss or ask for a raise or get a promotion. These were all things that, um, you know, I would have to I would be, fighting for, Erica always loves it when I say this line, but, like, fighting for my humanity on a Tuesday morning in a meeting.
0: Because when you said that line on Laney Gossip, okay, I, it was, it was, like, again, I felt seen. Like, <laughs> I don't, like, there's a reason I keep talking about, okay, so for, for those who of y'all who don't know, Kathleen and I are in uh, Black Women's Writers Group, and we had a... Um, A video kind of conference call um, after the George Floyd protests and well, not after, but after the initial sort of shock.
1: So we kind of all
0: came together and this was before your piece came out. Mm -hmm. But the way you were talking, you were all kind of already kind of leading us to that. And Uh just the way you were talking about the violence and about... And people don't understand violence unless it's physical.
1: Mm. They don't.
0: They don't understand Uh what violence really is. That violence does not come on its own. It comes with psychological violence. It comes with emotional violence, historical Uh violence, all of those things. And, you know, those things are not even recognized because well basically who's doing the recognition is first of all Uh they don't even have the capacity even if they have the will they just don't Uh and i just wonder if we're expecting things from people who cannot deliver because they have no fucking clue and they don't (sighs) want to have a clue because it's difficult for them and it's in a in inconvenient for them
1: yeah, I think I think you're hitting on something huge there because I think that especially now, you know, that people have spoken up. Um, I'm thinking of Ica Wong, who um, spoke out about uh, the the coverage or the lack of coverage at Entertainment Tonight Canada of um, you know stories about anti-black racism, which everyone else was doing no, and they weren't. So she spoke out. So I'm thinking of you know other people who've spoken out like Ica Kayla Wong. Gray. Kayla Gray,
0: um, Uh, Allie
1: Wilson, Denise Balkassoon, Imani? um, Yes, Imani Walker at CBC. Um, And then some other ones that I didn't mention because I was specifically talking about women there, but Joshua Grant, Dexter Brown, who Dexter Brown is the most recent. And it's just so common and frustrating, but all of those people have spoken out. And and so far from what I know, the only executive that has actually stepped down is um, the uh, executive producer at ET Canada. Otherwise, all of these people are still in their positions. So Erica, when you say that it's, it's kind of frustrating to be like, okay, well now these people are in charge of fixing it. So it's the same people Who upheld white supremacy in their positions, who abused their power and and used abusive language or said and did racist things, and now they are the ones who are supposed to make these environments safer. And I think at first I've really been thinking about this a lot. At first I was like, I don't want anybody to lose their jobs. I'm just trying to hold a mirror up to people. I don't I don't, you know, I I want them to change. But now I'm just really trying to figure out if these same people should be the ones in charge of the change.
0: No, <laughs> nobody, nobody within the organization should be charged with change because they are all part. And when I say nobody, I mean like the people, the decision makers. Yes. Right. The ones with power. Yes. Um, they are not capable because they're the ones upholding white supremacy And they've done zero work And a book club doesn't count Okay They've done <laughs> zero work To do anything to dismantle that system And why would they? They've made it to their positions Through that system So why are we pretending that the fox Can guard the hen house? I don't understand mm.
1: Yeah that's a big one And so like For, for Dexter Brown because that is such a good example of an environment not being safe, um, even if like f- physically tex- technically.
0: So you before you start, yeah. Um, Dexter Brown is um, an employee of the Fifth Estate, correct?
1: An ex employee of the Fifth Estate. Ex employee.
0: Yes. Okay. Can you give a little background of the Fifth Estate and their little N word problem?
1: Yes. So the Fifth Estate is, uh, you know, kind of like a documentary news style show. Um, And I guess in a um, in a, a pitch meeting or a conversation where they were discussing these two documentaries and these two documentaries are about racism in the South, in the U.S. And. Dexter Brown says that he was not given a heads up that they were even going to be watching these two documentaries about like very violent racism, um, and that he didn't know there was going to be this discussion after. So they watch these two documentaries, and there's this discussion. And in the discussion, two senior white people say the N-word. And he is sitting there in this meeting. And in this the story of where Dexter Brown is like recounting this happening, they have other people who wanted to remain anonymous, cooperating his story and saying that nobody said anything. Nobody spoke up. Nobody was like, hey, do not use this word. And Dexter being, um, from what I understand, the only black person in the room at the time, was like, of course, very hurt and felt alone. And you know, had this violent word thrown around, thrown around casually by his bosses, essentially. And yeah,
0: from one of them was host ahead. Gillian Finley.
1: Yes, one of them was. One the
0: of host, them was yeah. the host. <laughs> yes, much like Wendy Mesley, and editor yes. Loretta Hicks. Right, and you Those know what they, too. you know what they did to silence, to make sure they didn't talk, NDAs.
1: Yeah. So that's a big part of it was he you know, put in a a formal complaint and they got back to him and said, we have handled this internally or by a third party person. They've been whatever they've been dealt with. And then those people who were dealt with, quote unquote, um, had to sign NDAs so they couldn't talk about it. So when they were reached for comment, they were like, oh, can't talk about it. NDAs. Who's that NDA protecting? The that NDA is protecting mm-hmm. the organization and it is protecting the two white women who said the N word. That, that NDA is not protecting Dexter Brown.
0: White and women I love this, this N word.
1: They really freaking do. Oh my God. And I, I just think that that's, you know, even going back to my story as well, I think that this is just part of why there's so much fear about coming forward and speaking out about these things because all of the systems in place. Are there to protect the institution and to protect the white people in power all of it i i I just don't know what is there to protect us what is in place to protect us and this is what we're fighting for right now
0: well that's why people are out in the streets i mean it's it's gotten to the point where we have to have our own me too movement even just to be heard and um i find it very interesting that we're hearing a lot of black women talking and speaking Mm. out and Mm. as usual women carry the burden this emotional burden of speaking out Uh you know it's that caretaker you know gender association right Uh um and i from what i see what i've seen Uh, There hasn't been much in terms of what CBC has done in terms of dealing with this issue. The point with CBC is that we all pay for CBC. And if they can't be transparent, they should be hauled in front of a parliamentary committee.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I, yeah, I can't speak as much to the inner workings of the CBC, but yes, as an audience member, as a, as a, you know, Canadian, absolutely. I want some sort of like, yes, formal, um, accountability and, and yeah, there needs to be, I also think that, you know, you, you equated it to the Me Too movement. Um, and I think that it is a fair comparison. I just, there were a lot of public statements, During that, there was a lot of people losing their jobs. I'm not seeing that same energy right now in Canada.
0: I'm say it, sister.
1: (laughs) I'm just not seeing it. I'm even like the the momentum, let's say, of of my piece, even of like all of those names I listed of people who have spoken out. I'm seeing that die down a little. I'm seeing executives, I think, breathe a sigh of relief thinking, oh, this this moment, I don't like calling it a moment. Because like we've been here, we're going to still be black three weeks from now, three months from now and still be dealing with this shit. But I just feel like they're kind of they said their apologies internally. I haven't seen a lot of apologies publicly, but okay, I've seen some apologies, heard about apologies um, internally. I've gotten some personal apologies. And then I think they're like, okay, cool, that's it. Let's move on now.
0: I think that's exactly what's happening. And, you know, I I don't know. And this is where, unfortunately, um, I feel like I want these protests to continue in America. Because that's the only opening we seem to have up here. Oof.
1: Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I honestly, we would not be having this conversation even if, yeah, if things didn't um, blow up in in the States like they had. And then that, you know, trickled down to people actually paying attention in Canada. Yeah, you're right.
0: So Amanda Paris has also written about the history of Canadian institutions silencing black voices just to speak their truth. And she says, whether our concerns are casually dismissed or weaponized to justify the limits of our career mobility, the messages could... Cons- yes, I know. The message Amanda is-
1: with the bars always. <laughs> <A> me- <laughs>
0: always. Shout out to Amanda Paris. Oh, I'm uh, the
1: biggest fan of her. I love her Oh so
0: my much. gosh. The message is consistent. These truths are not welcome here. Speaking up mm. now will, no doubt, have consequences. So we were we were speaking off air about um how much fear there is to even step out of line because it is tied to our livelihoods so Uh we're definitely losing in terms of um sort of like an opportunity cost because we're not being promoted on merit um Uh but also the little bit we have we're trying to hold on to because we know how easy it is to slide down the banister into um economic ubiqu like whatever like chicken crash all down all around you and the mm-hmm. fact that like we live on this razor's edge even the most successful ones i feel live on this razor, this razor's edge that any that everything that you've worked for can go in a, in a second.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is um yeah, the, there's fear at every level, especially if you are a black woman because, you know, we know that recessions disproportionately affect us. Um we know that again, going back to like my whole thing about a dream job for us is a myth. Like we we don't get promoted at the same level. We don't get jobs. We don't even get in the room. In a lot of cases, I'm an exception and look at what happened to me, you know? So, um, I think that, yeah, that fear is, is very real and it is, you know, I say it in the piece, like we end up having to choose between our morals, our values, our integrity and our livelihood. And that is such an unfair choice that we have to make.
0: Even our humanity uh-huh. we have to choose between our humanity yeah. and our livelihoods, and that's not fair it's just not no, right
1: it's not and and I you know I always, when having this conversation, want to acknowledge the people that left the the talent that we lost, who um, you know Amanda mentions it in her piece and and I wanted to acknowledge it as well the the people who did not stick it out. And I've, I've heard that a lot in the feedback. Um, you know, people reaching out to me and saying, hey, I left the industry after a bad internship. I left the industry after some bad interviews. I left the industry after a year because I couldn't handle the racism, the microaggressions, the the knowing that I would not advance in this in this career. And so think about all that talent we've lost. Think about all those stories that weren't told. Think about how Lesser off this industry is because of anti Black racism,
0: which makes me, which brings me to an interesting sort of uh, that I didn't put in my notes, which because this is you know I veer off. Um, <laughs> an industry that is failing, actually, it's it's yeah. it's the fact that it's not like they're doing okay; they're doing really shitty, <laughs> and. You know, you try to tell them, hey, you may want to tell, I don't know, other stories. And they're like, yeah, sure. And then they do nothing. And then they whine and complain that all the Americans are taking their audience. And I'm just like, because you don't provide anything for the audience that is. You provide everything for the audience you want to think we have.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, that part. That's a huge one. I really think it is part of why I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the media industry is, is failing right now. But um, I think one of the big ones is everything you just mentioned. And this idea of I put it in the piece of
0: Susie in Saskatchewan. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was my segue. <laughs> OK. OK. I'm so excited about this. You know why? Because. So, yeah, yeah. Go. Go ahead. Tell, tell well, us about Well, I was going to break
1: down what what that is like you know, there's so many times that I've heard in my career of Susie in Saskatchewan's not going to get that. That's not a story for Susie in Saskatchewan. This is, and this could be, you know, I also say Brenda and Barry, it could be like, I don't know, um, Allie in Alberta. Like it's, 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 um, somebody who Karen in Kelowna, BC. (laughs) Um, it is just like this, this idea of a white a phantom white audience member that for whatever reason is always really dumb probably kind of racist because she doesn't ever want to hear any stories about anyone who's not white um it's very much like appealing to this like suburban white mom and, and it's this narrow focus of, like, that's who Canada is. That's who the Canadian audience is. And if we don't do stories directed at her, then it's not worth doing. And I think that has been so dangerous. And it is a thing that, like, across every newsroom and every show in Canada, I have heard that this is what we go back to, that it's got to be directed at Susie in Saskatchewan. Why? Tell me why. Who is Susie? Why do I have to cater everything to her?
0: Yeah, I've had those conversations, too. And this is why <laughs> I, that's this jumped out at me. Like, I remember, and, uh, you know, it brings me also to realize the journalism and me, like, being a journalist and understanding media are two different things. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, first of all, you don't know what Susie's going to read. OK, no, you don't. You second don't. of second of all, why are you un- why are you assuming that the people who will read your stuff is that Karen in Kelowna? Yes. OK, maybe Karen just doesn't read your stuff. Maybe Karen reads Fox News. Is uh, sure. is this the is this the audience that you're trying to to acquire? And if so, why? Mm hmm. Like, like, there's some really big questions. I don't think they figured out the audience. Whenever I ask people at CBC, hey, who's your audience? They're like, everybody. I'm like, no, because not everybody watches you because I know I don't a lot.
1: Yeah, it's not because like you said, if you're feeling seen for the first time in Canadian media this year. (laughs) <laughs> then we we know that they haven't they haven't figured out their audience or they haven't you know targeted the right people and I also think that yeah this idea that so let's say fine let's say Karen and Kelowna or Susie and Saskatchewan are super racist and they don't want to you know hear stories that are told from the black experience about the black experience in Canada really that's who you want to cater to that's who you want your content to uh, subscribe to that Racist person? Okay. Like, that doesn't, you're right, that that doesn't make sense to me. I think that the content is suffering there. And I also think there's that. So there's like, if she is racist, really, do you want to be catering to her? And then two is, if our goal is to entertain and inform, which is like so much of what we set out to do as journalists, as producers, as writers, we are not informing with truth if you are leaving out an entire group of this country? Groups, plural, indigenous people as well.
0: These people couldn't even show up for Wet'suwet'en in their own <laughs> damn country. I, <laughs> I read, I read, you know, it's only, like I keep saying, it was the Narwhal, it was the Taiyi, it was all these sort of digital media type publications that were started or have a particular outlook a point of view right and i find that so i am lucky where i have my editor's black and i feel like um, a lot of the reasons that i'm allowed to write a lot of the reason that i was able to develop a voice like i developed my writing style at the hill times right uh-huh. and i was able to do that because i get edited for you know facts and for whether or not the 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 argument makes sense rather than being pithy as i sometimes am or being acerbic as i sometimes am like l- recently um, we had an experience with, um, with a non-black editor. And this was the same sort of style, the same sort of way that um, we had written before and in this publication before. And she complained that, oh, we were too, you know, mm. too much. And I'm just like, okay, first of all, there's some, that's some internalized sexism, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but second of all, that's my style. <laughs> and it works. You don't believe me? Ask, ask your competitors. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm just like, what is the matter with you? But that is how we are edited out of ha- of our own voice and what we have Ooh. to say.
1: Edited out of our own voice, yes, yes, yes. I think that that is a whole other component of this. Um, yeah, I uh, have experienced this a lot, yeah, from from writing for, for white editors and then having, you know, white producers even, like, look over your work and, or cut a piece down or whatever it is, and what they want to take out. Um, And I think that, you know, there are white editors who are really great, and, and um, can can understand, but you're right, like the, the capacity to really understand certain things, or to offhand, like, flippantly try to take something out, or change a word, or change even some sort of slang, that is like, they might not understand, but it's like, I'm not writing for you. And I know that my people are going to understand this. So like, let yours Google it. And I think that we, we, we think that in a lot of other ways. We think, okay, if someone doesn't get this, they can look it up. But when it comes to anything specific to like the black experience, if you don't have a black editor, it's like, we have to over explain that thing because this, this isn't for them. Right? This is for the white totally. Audience. Totally. Um, And I think that's just, like, a that's a huge issue and why we keep talking about um, having more black, indigenous, and people of color in senior positions. Because that's who makes the ultimate decision. Like, there could be something that ends up having my name on it that isn't necessarily exactly how I wanted to say it. Can
0: you and, explain that to people? Because I feel like people need to know how how media works like you pitch first of all when i explain to somebody that the writer of the piece doesn't choose the headline <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, that. they're like really and i'm like no i didn't write <laughs> ra- no they're like this is such a great headline and i'm like i didn't write it i don't write that the headlines. Not me. No. um
1: yeah i mean okay so i'll i'll go back to being in um like working on a on a daytime show and um how that pitch process worked. So we would all like most of the producers would get together and have uh, a pitch meeting. You bring stories that you think should make it onto the show. And then ultimately like the executive producer or the supervising producer or the senior producer, they would then deliberate and decide. And like, sometimes you're also in that meeting and other times you like pitch your thing and then it's out of your hands in times when I was in those meetings, um, and it wasn't just me, it was other women of color. It was, um, you know, sometimes hosts of the show as well, really fighting for certain stories. And, you know, the example I give in the piece is um, when Eric Garner was killed by police. I was pushing for that story to, to be told, to, for us to talk about it. It was also when Eric Garner died in 2014, or was killed in 2014... Um, it was the first conversation, really, about body cameras, which obviously now we know defund the police. We know that you know reforms like that don't work. But it was a co- the, there was a national conversation happening around like body cameras, around also it, he was the first um, really big mainstream story we heard about like I-, I Can't Breathe, this like use of force by police. There was just all these things we could talk about, and also we know that those things happen in Toronto that black people are 20 times more likely to be killed by police in Toronto. Our show is, set, is based in Toronto. I just there were all of these reasons why we should talk about this story and why we should lead with it. I was la- the night before holding my brother's hand and crying, watching the news about this. I was so, so affected by it. And then I yeah was in a meeting and had to listen to my boss tell me that no one cared. Our audience doesn't care be super flippant about it and also just make a bad editorial decision in not to cover this. And so, yeah, that's that's how those that works is that like the there you could pitch something um, and even if it's yours, even if you are the producer assigned to like execute that segment, you aren't necessarily in charge of what the topics become in that segment. Or, you know, if I'm producing an interview with an author who wrote something, like wrote about race, and then I want a certain question in, a senior person could very well take that question out. And so I think that's how things get censored, even if you are like the producer assigned to that segment, or you're the writer assigned to that story, things can get watered down by management.
0: Yep. And this is why I always say the editors, the, produce, the executive producers... Um, All of those the people who so if you're a producer on like a radio show, you are tasked with finding the talent basically that goes on that show, Uh which means that your networks have to reflect that and they don't have they have not built those networks. They have not Uh built networks beyond whiteness. And so mm-hmm. this idea that, oh, there's nobody out there is just bullshit because there are many of us out there. Um, but, it, you know, Canada also has this like this attitude, Canadian media especially, that if you're, if you're black and worthwhile, you have to come from America. And that's the Oof. other thing like they don't even they don't even respect our stories there's this uh-huh. there is this like american voyeurism to make us feel better about ourselves that happens and so they bring on american Black people to talk about their Experiences in America Which is another form of white supremacy Just to make Mm -hmm. Canada feel Good and just Mm -hmm. so that You head off any sort of criticism At the past how many of us Have heard well at least we're not in America like Fuck you I will say this and I'm Going to use this as a segue Because all I know is Portland's happening Mm -hmm. Portland's (laughs) happening and it's Spreading and I'm just going to intro this. At first, you know, so Portland protests started on the night of May 25th. So we're Sunday, July 27th, 26th right now. We This is day 59 that these protests are going on. Now, at first, they were peaceful demonstrations until the police arrived. Federal agents dressed in camouflage and tactical gear basically took over the streets of Portland, unleashing tear gas, blooding protesters and and basically kidnapping people off the street in unmarked vans in what Governor Kate Brown of Oregon has called a blatant abuse of power. So this was unleashed by Trump, billed as as an attempt to, you know, stamp out. Uh, persistent unrest, and to protect government property. But it has infuriated local leaders who says the agents have stoked tensions. So um, these agents are part of a rapid deployment team put together by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which include 2,000 officials from Customs and Borders Protection, ICE, the Transportation Security Administration and the Coast Guard are supporting the Federal Protective Service, an agency that already provides security in f- at federal properties. So, the agents have only the authority to make arrests if they believe that a federal crime has been committed. Homeland security has pointed to dozens of possible crimes in Portland, such as the damage of the federal courthouse, spray painting of graffiti on federal property and throwing of rocks and bottles at officers. But aggressive approaches frequently backfire. So I am of the belief that in situations like this, police presence actually increases the violence. And I mean, that is Erica. That's a fact. Yeah, it's a fact. Li- yeah, because yes. like, yeah, uh, no,
1: I mean, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's just you, no. you said you're of the belief. And I was just going to be like, yeah, we we know that police escalate these situations. There is especially in Portland. There was, you know, not everything was peaceful. And like, I'm not I'm, I'm not putting peaceful protesting above anything else. I'm just saying that, like, there were peaceful uh, protests and then federal agents showed up started throwing people in vans, started using aggressive force, and it got to the point where it is now.
0: So basically, this is a cycle. So the protesters, protests emerge in a reaction to police killing. A marcher rally proceeds peacefully until the protesters say, block a street, or go down an unplanned route, or stay in an area longer than expected. So these are all the things that could get you... um, that the police have used to justify an escalation of force. The police intervene, the protesters resist, confrontation ensues, and typically spinning into somebody getting shot, as we saw in Kentucky with the National Guard, um, who shot a protester. Uh, Police find themselves outnumbered. Their show of force produces the circumstances it was designed to avoid they panic Uh they panic Uh and and you know not all the time some of them are just cold-blooded murderers but you know whatever increasing the number of police who are trying to contain the protests particularly with inexperienced officers from outside the community who are not trained trained for crowd confrontations and lack mm-hmm. the discipline necessary for such situations often fans the flame instead of tempering them down when the national guard or other troops are called to help the police crowds. They usually escalate the situation. So there. Yes. yes. I, there you're is. right. It is not my belief. It's literally fact.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, um, yeah, I think that you, when you see what's going on in Portland, it does feel, first of all, it's, it's very, uh, I think that they know exactly what they're doing. I think that Trump and those federal agents know exactly what they're doing. Um, I think they want to escalate the violence. I think they want every night on CNN for there to be uh, fire and destruction and to be able to blame that on the protests um, to distract from the conversation about anti-black racism and police uh, killing and brutality and defund the police. I think that's, that was exactly their goal and they're succeeding. And I, and I think that the thing that maybe has backfired is how white Portland is and that people seem to be really paying attention because of how white it is and that there's white people on the front lines of these protests.
0: Right. Because the same, the same sort of, of, um, excuses for criminality and for killing black people and justifying um, the use of force, which basically comes down to you know it goes back to the whole we are apes and can't be um, can't be controlled without violence. Uh, mm. We're not even human, which goes back to the whole humanity discussion And then I'm gonna pull something that you wrote, that I always, I'm, I'm finding myself quoting more now. And that's the t- Tony Morrison quote, right? Mm-hmm. This very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again, your reason for being none of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. And exactly Ooh, what he said about, mm-hmm. about this being a distraction From the work of dismantling systemic racism, it just Uh it just hit on the head. So, yeah, I mean, I'm so what do you think about? So you talked you just talked about it being white and I totally agree with you. Um, The fact that these are all white people and specific white people. Right. These aren't like your quote unquote Antifa people. These are Mm-mm. people with, okay, what I saw over the weekend was the wall of moms, the wall of dads, mm. all suburban white people, mm-hmm. right?
1: I will say, I mean, there are, there are black people in Portland protesting, but yes, yes. what we're yes. seeing on the news and for the most part, yes, is this, so, is this like white suburban moms, white suburban dads, yes.
0: So I also want to say that, thank you for bringing that up because I feel like I should say this. Um, This is a Black Lives Matter protest Uh that started off peacefully with rallies and so on and so forth. The people that I'm mentioning came in later. So I just want to put that out there because I know we're going to be talking about it in a minute. But I don't want to erase the, um, the fact that when this protest began before the federal agents came in this was a black lives matter protest however i also don't want to give um don't want to give a lot of clout to this idea that antifa came in and fucked it all up because the whole antifa thing i feel like is is a red herring Uh to equate um far-right violence to somehow far left violence which is just not equatable
1: yes I agree yes.
0: Um, but I do want to say that the like waves of people are coming in but this is a still a black lives matter protest and mm-hmm. even in the videos and Twitter you can hear them say you know so like you can see the signs you know wall of moms for black lives matter and stuff like that mm-hmm. Um so wall of moms wall of dads they had then added the uh wall of vets um and this is what i'm gonna that i found interesting and i was saying this to my mom lawyers for black lives matter came out are out nurses are out so the professional class has now joined this protest and when the professional classes join We have a whole new situation, is my point. And this Mm. is already spread spread to Seattle, Vancouver. Yes, our Vancouver. So Canada is not immune. And it Mm -hmm. goes back to that whole, hopefully the states will make this a big deal so that Canada can actually Mm -hmm. see this as a thing. Um, Mm. And I guess I've heard on Twitter, on various social media about sort of white women and white people taking over these protests here's my thing and you know fuck it if i get raked over the coals for this because when has that ever stopped me but um i cannot sit here and write and complain that white people don't do shit and then when and don't put their bodies on the line and when they do like this guy christopher david who was the navy veteran who was being beaten with a baton and pepper sprayed by these federal forces um, who then went on TV and said, imagine if I were black. No, yeah, let's bring this- to that
1: man. He's like,
0: he's a <laughs> he's a hero. OK, yes,
1: because like, yeah, he's used his interview to be like, let's bring this back to Black Lives Matter. If I were black and he asked the reporter, you think if I were black, you would be talking to me right now that I would be getting this much press? And she was like, yes. He was like, "Okay." no, like he's 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 legit, like he's legit. He's just uh, he's saying exactly what he should. And he is trying to put the focus back on. He's using his privilege as a white vet who everyone now wants to talk to. He is using that to try to put focus back on black lives. Um, which I think is is right, and yeah, I want you to continue your point because I interrupted you.
0: So, for example, uh, what I found out is that um, so we'll get to the Wall of Moms here. I, moms have a very mothers have a very important part in protesting, but let me let me get through the white women first. Okay, so the Wall of Moms, I'm not going to criticize. Because I feel like they are doing what we ask of them to do. Um, And what I found out, this is a very interesting point. Teresa Rayford, a black mother who is the executive director of Don't Shoot Portland, a local group that works to end police violence, helped to organize and direct the wall of mom's early actions but noted the positive response to the mostly white mothers has been proof of the very same racism that we're protesting. So I Mm -hmm. found it very interesting that it was a black woman who organized them at first. You actually built on that point when we were talking about this offline.
1: Yeah. So I um, agree. I think that, you know, we have been saying, where are you beside us? Why aren't you protesting with us? Why? Like, my liberation is your liberation and it should be treated as such. Um, And so I agree that now that there are white people, and again, Portland, like, you know, these protests of course are pretty white because Portland is 86. Sorry, that's Oregon. Oregon is 86.7% white. Portland is 77.1% white, 5.8% black. So of course there was going to be a lot of white people at these protests. Um, And I think that, yeah, because we're saying be there and now they're there. My issue with the wall of moms is how the media has latched onto it, how they've been exalted and been put at the forefront of this. The fact that they're there is fine. Be there. Even the the moms that were standing in front of other black protesters so the federal agents couldn't get to them, that I, I appreciate, do that work. But I think that uh, they shouldn't then be hailed as the saviors, as the white saviors who came in and um, get all the glory because, yeah, black moms have been there. You just said a black woman started this. Where is her shine? Where is all the conversation around the work that she's doing? And especially like even we looked at like Trayvon's mom and all of the mothers who have lost sons who have been like the mothers of the movement. This is what we call them.
0: Mothers of the movement. Talk about them.
1: (laughs) Where is the all of the articles and all of the like magazine things for them?
0: Didn't Beyonce even bring them out on stage at the Grammys? Was it the Grammys?
1: Ugh. Beyonce I put feel- them in, in her music, but she was. they were in Lemonade.
0: They were in Lemonade, but okay, yes. let me fact check this and you go on.
1: But yeah, and then I think that, you know, I'm going back to a, a protester. They're calling her Naked Athena. She's a nude protester who is, is white passing. I read a story where her friends call her a light-skinned woman of color, whatever that means, but she looks very white and she is doing yoga poses in the nude in the middle of these protests. And... To me, that's not that's not being a proper ally because you are by that spectacle of being naked, naked, and using your like white naked body. um, That is taking away from everything else. That is making the story about you, and this is so not about you.
0: It wasn't the Grammys. She uh, appeared on the red carpet. Okay. Yes. So it wasn't during the show. Okay. Yes. Okay. 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 All right.
1: So, I got it. I was like, <laughs> I don't try to test me show. on my Beyonce knowledge.
0: <laughs> Girl, I would never. I would never. Okay. So th- the mothers of the movement, uh, the mothers of Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Garner, Oscar Grant, and Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Go ahead. I think
1: in every conversation we have about the wall of moms, we need to be mentioning those four women. Every single one.
0: I agree. I agree because that loss is real Mm -hmm. and, um, black mothers in movement building are so instrumental. So instrumental. We talk about black women, black mothers are wow. Like I like the community builders, black mothers, uh, the, 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 um, the basis of the existence of us is black mothers. And I'm not talking about in a, in a heteronormative bios biological way. I'm talking about in terms of rearing the kids in the neighborhood kind of thing, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, black mothers. I, but I also want to remind people. I also want to bring in that, Mothers in general have been pretty, they've been amazing when it comes to revolution. And I think what they've been able to do, mothers protests are powerful because the gender roles that ordinarily silence and sideline women, allowing them to be seen as non-threatening, Can be weaponized and turned into political activism. And when I, they, this reminded me of um, the mothers of the Plaza de de Mayo, um, or the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina, who were in the Plaza every Sunday, I think, after church, dressed in white. And these are they were pro they were basically this was a silent protest for all of their children who were seized, tortured and murdered and disappeared by the military junta in Argentina at the time. And you have Armenia's 2018 Velvet Revolution, nonviolent uprising that eventually toppled the country's leader. The Mothers of the Disappeared were also instrumental in toppling Argentina's Junta government, them and the Falkland Islands debacle. But anyway, the point being that um, this sort of gender role and, you know, that's hopefully more of what we're seeing has been weaponized to actually highlight the violence of the regime in place is basically what. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I did. I did not know all of that. So thank you for teaching me as you always do. I always learn something when I listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, I think and then I and I think that's what the biggest issue for me, going back to like the wall of moms in Portland, the biggest issue is those are the stories we don't hear. I have not heard the stories of the black moms in Portland. Um, The the mothers of this movement. You're not hearing those stories.
0: It's the Toronto Burke of it all. If black Mm. women did not carry Alyssa Milano to task and drag (laughs) her on Twitter, yes, cancel culture, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Without cancel culture and people really... You know, Alyssa Milano was on Was was being hailed As somehow the founder Of the Me Too movement I remember yep. reading those headlines And if it weren't For black women on Twitter And people like Who, you know, who were then I think Aver DuVernay Maybe maybe said something too But basically If it weren't for black women on Twitter We wouldn't know who Toronto Burke was
1: Absolutely Absolutely. You're
0: right. And this is a black woman for whom has been working and doing this work for, for basically decades. I think it was like 20 something years Mm -hmm. and just boom erased Mm -hmm. because it goes back to media and Mm -hmm. exactly what we've been talking about this entire Mm -hmm. episode. And it Mm -hmm. goes back to them, not even giving us the straight facts because their white supremacy is more important.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they would rather Toronto Burke is a dark skinned black woman who is not a petite white actress like Alyssa Milano. They would rather those people, like we said, the executives in decision making positions, producers in position, decision making positions, would rather... Lead a story with Alyssa Milano than Tarana Burke.
0: So, your uh, your beat is entertainment.
1: <laughs> it is
0: so, usually <laughs> so. So that's funny. So and because we haven't been talking about that, but yeah. I okay. So I am really bullish on pop culture. Okay, I believe that pop culture is a really seductive way. To talk about really big complicated issues.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That's my my whole MO. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And w- like I find that. So I'm going to traditional media does has not traditional Canadian media could be doing that more. For example, mm-hmm. they could also be doing tech more. I'm just saying there are many areas they could go to build whatever, um, you know, content base and subscriber base or whatever their model is okay i agree there, and there even we just saw go.
1: yeah and we just saw with the with the global layoffs they laid off their entire lifestyle um team and i think that like this this complete like lack of respect or um commitment to build lifestyle entertainment arts in canadian media is really really unfortunate i think you're right
0: that's what's driving conversation. That's the thing. Oh, my gosh, I just got it. Canadian media cannot drive conversation. They're only Ooh. reactive.
1: Yeah, oh, so reactive. Oh, so reactive because they're so scared. I mean, I, I'm scared is not the right word, I guess, because these people are in power, but they're just so um, short-sighted and so... Um, yeah, you're right. Like so, just hesitant for what for all of the reasons to, uh, yeah, push anything forward. It's because also there's so many, there's there's not a like diverse thought for the people making these decisions. They all think the exact same. So you're never you're always gonna be reactive if you have a bunch of old white people who think the same making the decisions.
0: Yeah, and then want to collect their diversity bonus. I ha- I have <laughs> issues. I have yeah. so many issues about this. Div- I oh. Anyway, anyway, let me move on. Um, So, yeah, uh, what's going on in the world? Oh, there's a lot going on in entertainment. I mean, there's
1: there's a lot going on in the world of entertainment. But I think that, you know, to talk about entertainment and to talk about the way in which a pop culture story can create a bigger conversation. I don't think that we could do that today without talking about Kanye West. So let's do it. And I have been really hesitant, actually, in the past, I would say, a couple of years to talk about Kanye, uh, to engage in Kanye stories. I used to be a huge Kanye fan. If any of you know me from Lainey Gossip, my very first story on Lainey Gossip was in defense of Kanye West. It was, I used to be. I read a that. Fi- <laughs> yeah. I Girl, used to
0: a- I'm so excited that you <laughs> named- I was like, that was yours. <laughs> no it i was read, because i was a big con i thought kanye was a fucking genius I so that, and genius. i
1: th- I actually do still think that
0: he's i a think he's a genius still but genius anyway.
1: qualities to him but i mean we also can't ignore his history of uh being um misogynistic and anti-black women specifically um But I've been trying to disengage because I, um, you know, he's talked openly about his bipolar disorder. And this is a man uh, with a mental illness who is really just like unraveling very publicly. And then I also didn't want to disengage because he's spewing some very hateful rhetoric, he was he was like a MAGA hat wearing loser for a very long time. That I was like I don't want to engage in this conversation anymore. Um, but I think right now it's really interesting because you know to bring people up to speed, he decided he was running for president, and he started a campaign and his uh, campaign rally became really this um, demonstration of where Kanye West is right now, which is a man who says in ridiculous, hurtful things, um, that are historically inaccurate. Like the stuff he said about Harriet Tubman and, uh, you know, remember what he
0: said about slavery?
1: Yes, exactly. And that, you know, someone who says that slavery was a choice. Um, All of the things that that he's saying and he, you know, at that rally accosted a black woman. Um, And then but then you also saw him break down in tears, talk about his mother's death, throw out some very horrible, not horrible, throw out some very personal uh, details about him and Kim's decision of whether or not to have an abortion or to have their daughter Northwest, like stuff that that we, there's none of our business that none of us should know. Um, But this man was clearly having um, a breakdown in an episode in front of a lot of people. And so it has now sparked this conversation about mental health. It has sparked this conversation about who we give uh, a pass to in the media for their mental health, um, how much sympathy we have for celebrities who have public mental health episodes. You know, I'm thinking of Britney Spears. You brought up Azalea Banks. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely started this larger conversation and I think it is, you know, how do we interact with Kanye West in 2020? Oh my gosh, that's such a complicated <laughs>
0: question. <sighs> Kanye I. All I can think of is 808s and Heartbreak, man. That album. Because wasn't that the first album after his mother died? Anyway, the, the, that album, whichever album it was right after, I was like, wow. Wow. That album was just like you could see the pain. You could hear the pain. And that mm-hmm. was understandable. But I don't think he's gotten through that.
1: No, and, absolutely not.
0: And we're, we were just talking about black motherhood. And I'm really, my interest in Kanye, Kanye now has more to do with the relationship between black motherhood and sons and this black mm. sons. And it seemed as though once his mother died, he didn't have a constraint anymore and so even you're
1: you're right sorry to interrupt you. yeah no go ahead 808s was the first the first album after Donda's death yeah
0: go ahead I mean don't get me wrong he made some great albums I don't think Kanye will stop making great albums in whatever capacity he can make albums but that is a defining moment in his life and I am just I feel like maybe and I'm I'm totally projecting here um, that maybe he just lost that a part of that sense of self of who he was and has yeah. never regained that.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's there's a lot of things going on there and I think that the loss of his mother is a big thing and we have to give grace there but I also think and this is you know coming from leaders in in the mental health industry you know people who have bipolar disorder as well who have said or who have experienced loss and and mental illness together which is like grief and mental illness is, is such a hard thing to to navigate together um but they've also talked about how to excuse some of his language and some of his action and some of what he said by um You know, coupling it with his mental illness and saying, oh, that's like the illness speaking or because he has a mental illness, he is now, you know, a horrific misogynist and spewing anti-black rhetoric or spewing um, anti-abortion rhetoric they they are really uncomfortable with that, yeah. equa- like equating those two things, which I'm uncomfortable with too, because, so you know, mm-hmm. I know a, a lot of people who have mental health issues. Yeah. You know, I have severe anxiety and like panic disorder. And if somebody was like, oh, that's why I'm racist, I would have an issue with yeah. equating those those two things, you know. And I think that whenever we talk about Kanye, I think there has to be room for it. Yes, there, we need to have grace. We need to be sensitive to his mental health issues we are seeing in the past few years a more of a um a global conversation about mental health and so that has to extend to giving kanye some grace and some room to like uh have all of these issues in public but we also have to you know say what he is saying is horrible what he's saying is anti-black and wrong and this is this is why and that he you know shouldn't be taken seriously not because of his mental illness but because of what he's actually saying and and separate those two like a lot of things can be true at the same time separately and I think that's what's going on with Kanye West
0: well it's the same it's the same thing people are trying to do with Trump right they're trying to pretend that his anti-black racism and then his racism in general and his misogyny is is somehow somehow the amount of times I've heard, oh, the president has a mental illness. And I'm like. OK, first of all, does he? And second yeah, of all, I mean,
1: I think, I, yeah, I think with Kanye, what does that have
0: to do with anything like we know yes. Kanye has, you know what I mean? We know yes. Kanye has some some issues, but Kanye has turned into like he always had a big ego we know but mm-hmm. he really has turned into um a tragic figure
1: he has any and i mean I, th- I also think that i had like fan blinders on because there have been you know people have pointed out some past lyrics that
0: of were course were problematic I, I agree
1: yeah that i know i you know that's on me that i've definitely overlooked over the years from being me too a, from, girl when I was a fan. Um, but yeah, he, now for sure, he is this tragic figure where you're like, he is responsible for some, some of the best music of the past few decades. Um, and he is also, um, this, this polarizing, controversial, wrong and strong figure who has just like, you can't, I will never be able to get out of my head that interaction at TMZ when he was talking about slavery being a choice, and that interaction with Van Lathan. Like I, I, like my fandom of of Kanye died a long time ago in the way that it it used to exist. But I was I've never been like that disappointed in a human being before. I don't think.
0: Yeah, and then he went to the White House and he did this. He did this shuck and jive thing, too. You know, when he went to the White House and he's like, oh, Trump, you're so great because I'm looking at this man and I'm like, what happened to all your blackness? That part.
1: And I think that, you know, a lot of people want to blame the Kardashians, which I mean, we can get into this. Like, you know, Kim, I have her statement here um, when after Kanye had that, that rally and it was very public. She and people were being like, what are the Kardashians doing? Why aren't, why isn't someone, you know, getting him out of the spotlight right now and getting him help. And, um, I don't think that it's fair to blame a man's actions on his wife. Um, But I also am not the biggest fan of the Kardashians. So again, two things can be true. So Kim said, as many of you know, Kanye has bipolar disorder. Anyone who has this or a loved one in their life who does knows how incredibly complicated and painful it is to understand. I've never spoken publicly about this, uh, about how this has affected us at home because I am very protective of our children and Kanye's right to privacy when it comes to his health. But today I feel like I should comment on it and the stigma and the misconceptions you know and she basically goes on to uh, say that that he is going through something and that she is she's been trying to get to get him help and that it's not you know it's not easy which in in that moment I kind of agree with Kim Kardashian and I hate that Kanye is making me agree with Kim Kardashian
0: but I had to agree with her too that's the best statement I've ever heard her put out ever mm-hmm. cuz it seemed honest mhm you know where's like I can only... Here's the thing. I don't want to blame the Kardashians because I feel that blaming Kim is going down that rabbit hole of another level of sexism. Yeah. And I feel as though we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Kim has been, you know, cast and as... um, as sort of like this man-eater, mm. which I think is very, I mean, granted, it's not like she didn't, you know, also use that, <laughs> you know? Well, again, it's that's like, the other thing, but yeah, yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, what were you going to just say? Actually,
1: I was, I was just going to say that. I think that, you know, the fact that Kim may be right in this instance and that she cannot be blamed for Kanye's actions and everything right now, doesn't negate the history of anti-blackness in that family yep. and how much, how they are culture vultures and yep. everything else and how they fetishize black men. Like mm-hmm. I, I think that it doesn't negate that, but yeah, in this, in this instance, in this,
0: in this narrow instance, <laughs> in this, this is what of Narrow instance. Yeah. yeah. I don't think otherwise, you, you know, Yeah, exactly. For once we, I don't think that this is her.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: For <laughs> once. So, wait a minute. So, tell us about Taylor Swift before we Oh, move yeah. On to okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, we're I'm not I don't want to spend too much time on this No, we're not. My, Trust me. Because I Taylor don't Swift. Let, yeah. This is another thing where um Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, the Taylor Swift and Kanye uh timeline like she famously said once i would like to be excluded from this narrative and Mm -hmm. it was like the kim and kanye narrative yeah and then you you know by saying that it's like she will never be she will always be included in the narrative so at this time that we are we are watching kanye really unravel really publicly taylor swift just released a in air quotes surprise album uh, called folklore which she told us 24 hours before it was being released and gave a whole explanation about it. So that's not a surprise drop, Taylor. But anyway. She's
0: um, not Beyonce.
1: (laughs) You are not Beyonce. Um, But this album, I would say, is probably her uh, best in a while. But it is still so overhyped. I, because I'm a fan of pop music, I, um, you know... I'm a basic bitch who loves mainstream shit. I have like listened to every <laughs> single I have listened to all of Taylor's albums. I have critiqued them. I'm also, you know, a music critic and and I write about pop culture. So I stay informed on on Taylor Swift and her happenings and whatever. No shade, man. Yeah, been... She's
0: a major, major player in this industry. Major to ignore player. her would be, you, can't. you know, you can't.
1: You can't. I'm not I a been fan, rude.
0: but, you know, I no. I don't ignore her, really. No. Yeah, so exactly. Like, well, sometimes. Anyway, carry on.
1: <laughs> I have been very critical of her in the past and um, how silent she's been, you know, when Nazi groups were using her face and her music and her images as like this Aryan goddess and she stayed quiet. And then to me, it was like, huh, there's no other reason you would stay quiet unless you agree with these people. She has now, of course, since come out and shown her politics and been very vocal for democratic candidates has, you know, said she is an ally to the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, I am still not sure if her motives for all of that were sincere or if she was just trying to get on the right side for her business. Um, but I will say, aside from all of that, just talking about the music, because this album is out and people seem to be losing their minds over it because it is, like I said, some of the best work she's put out in years. It is still so overhyped. I have not seen Taylor Swift deliver anything worthy of, you know, the accolades that she receives, the, the, the pedestal that she's on. There's two albums, 1999 and Red. Those are two very, very good albums. This is not that. And so I just want to do, I was like, well, everyone in the world is talking about this album. I just want to put it on record that there are some very good songs. That is her, her best work in a while. It is still way too overhyped. So
0: 1989 and Red. I know 1989 was, I I mean, even I kind of liked it. <laughs> can't deny it I couldn't Box deny on that it album. <laughs> there I will I'm like and then I'm like oh I remember that year and then I was like oh okay cool fine Taylor <laughs> sure but my problem with Taylor Swift is is the fact that she is the quintessential antebellum white woman mm-hmm OK, who would have been who would have been like every time I see her and she does this little Bambi deer in the headlights thing. I'm just like, oh, she just weaponizes her white innocence. That's what bothers me.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's and what she, bothers me yes.
0: about her. Yes.
1: Yes. She did that in the Kanye situation. Oh, yeah. Um, she has done it many times throughout her career. And even in her reaction to going political and doing a whole documentary that was very much that. That was very much like, oh, woe is me. I have to speak out now. And people are being mean to me. And it was like, welcome. Welcome to the fight. <laughs> this yeah. is, people are going to be mad at you. That's OK. Yeah. This isn't about you and your feelings. Um, yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that though, she is again, two things can be true separately. She is a very good songwriter. I actually don't know if Taylor Swift should be singing her own songs. That's this mm. is going to get me dragged by the Swifties. I think she's yeah. a very talented songwriter <laughs> and producer. Um, I mean, I think yeah, she could she could be a songwriter and producer on its own um, without her having to perform certain things because I don't think that she's a great performer um but anyway I, I don't um, think
0: she'll i don't think she is either i think she's quite mediocre
1: yes absolutely in in her voice and in her performance but i think she is an above is not a mediocre songwriter um and i think that that is like why she is i mean this is she is the quintessential example of like you said white womanhood but also white mediocrity that she is ah. the biggest pop star in the world and she's not even that, like that great of a pop star. I actually like this album, Folklore, because it's going back to like just her and her guitar, which is yes. where her strength is.
0: Yes, but she's I agree. the biggest
1: pop star in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think I think Taylor Swift has the right look uh, for you know for the paragon of whiteness. So when the Nazis claimed her, I wasn't surprised. I was like, wow, you guys are late. <laughs> you know (laughs) like what what, i like we knew this in 2009 (laughs) you know and you know i didn't like it when she had this feminist mantle when it was hot and then Mm. failed to actually be one Mm. and then you know but i also realized that at that time she was probably like what 21 22 23 whatever Mm -hmm. i get it you're young the the nuances the little things it, it doesn't dawn on you when you're younger,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. That,
0: that comes and, with age. Yeah. For
1: sure. And I actually think that now that I'm thinking of it, Taylor Swift can maybe even be put in the same category as the Portland moms. Because Ooh. I used to, because I used to criticize Taylor a lot for not speaking out, for not using her platform in 2016, when she did not tell yeah. people to vote against Trump. I was like, you have so much influence. Are you kidding and then now she is. Now she is using her platform to speak out, to be political. And so just like the moms where we were like, where are you at the protests?" And now they're there. It's kind of like we said, where are you, Taylor? And now she's, she's showing up in, in certain ways. So as much as I want to, I am still going to and want to criticize her intentions and, you know, also not give her any gold stars for finally showing up. Um, I think that it's hard to be like, you know, it's because this is what we asked her to do and now she's doing it. So, yeah, it's
0: hard to be like, fuck you, Taylor.
1: It is hard, (laughs) especially now. She is especially now that she's on the right side of it. Right. Like, yeah, she shanks. She's saying, should I agree with? So.
0: Look, I, I'm not going to be as, you know, I, I'm not going to be as thing on her as I used to be because, you know, I also realize that people come into this on their own and maybe part of sort of my work is giving people like her the space to come into uh-huh. their own uh-huh. on their own terms instead of because uh-huh. if she had sort of answered our call right away, then we would have been like the bandwagoner.
1: I know it's one of it's one of those things where you're like, she can't win.
0: She can't win.
1: But so, I, I mean, I, I still think that when you say words every, like there is going back to cancel culture or whatever, Taylor Swift has never been canceled. No, she would probably say differently, but she never has. Um, but I think that, you know, when you say words, people are allowed to react to them. And I am going to consistently do that with someone as as popular and as powerful as a Taylor Swift.
0: Fair enough. And on that note, that is it for our regular episode. We will not be back until September for a regular episode. I'm sorry. That is the way things are because I need a break. Um,
1: (laughs) Yes, girl. Take your break. Self-care. Oh my gosh.
0: I am so tired. I'm just tired. And at this point in like COVID land, I'm kind of like, Alright, I think it's time for a rest. Uh-huh. Basically. Uh-huh. Um, Kathleen Newman Bramang. There hey. you go. Yes, girl. Hey. I made sure I got it by the end, okay? Because I was like, I was like, let I was like, dear Lord, let me not say this one's name probably. Because they just going to think <laughs> all sorts of things. You know? You are you give you you don't know how much you gave me life over this summer. Um, Mm. you have no idea how many people you touch and have touched and continue to touch. So keep doing what you do. I am not, I'm going to force people to Google you, but if you want to drop some information in terms of how people can interact with you, fine. If you don't, I totally understand that too, (laughs) because you never know.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you so much that, you know, you just made me tear up a little there. Thank you. I um, can be found at Kathleen NB, Kathleen NB on Twitter and on Instagram same handle. Um, yeah, and and you can find my work at refinery29.com. Make sure your, your little Canadian flag is set there at refinery29.com and and that's where that's where I am.
0: That's right. Don't do the American site. You won't <laughs> find her. Okay. So, uh I guess, until, have a great summer, everybody. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, uh, Erica. Thank you. Your work, too. Let me tell you about the life you give through your work.
0: I. You know what the funny thing is? Do you ever feel like you're not doing enough sometimes? Oh,
1: all the time. All okay. the time.
0: Okay, so it's not just me. Like, And then I'm like, am I being a mammy? I'm, like, <laughs> 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 I'm so serious. I'm just like, am I... Am I working to You know Am I trying to save the world And I'm like Erica you can't do that You can only do your part And so Exactly There That is the self care Remind yourself of
1: that That is the self care uh, I did my best And my best was good enough Hannah Beachler said that She was the first black uh, Production designer To win an Oscar Anyway She did She won that for Black Panther And she said I did my best And my best is good enough And I think that black women Need to say that to ourselves All the time girl.
0: Thank you. (laughs) All right, everybody. Ciao.